Welcome to the Unscientific Method podcast, where we unpack the research and lives of scientists doing amazing things around us at the University of British Columbia. My name is Sarah Dada, and today's guest is inordinately interesting because she spans the space of quantification and qualitative research in public health and demonstrates the use of creativity for the betterment of science and humanity. Nancy is a public scholar with a compassionate demeanor and cool life experiment. Today, I'm joined by Nancy Cunningham, a PhD candidate in experimental medicine in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. She is supervised by Dr. Vivian Diaz-Lima and Dr. Kate Salters, and is here to talk about her experience in her PhD about hepatitis C virus. Hello, Nancy. Hi. Thank you, Sarah. So um, a little bit about Nancy. Nancy has been doing humanitarian work for a long amount of time. She's been doing it in Asia since her master's in health science from Johns Hopkins. This includes work in HIV prevention and writing a context-appropriate health textbook for post-secondary learners. She has also worked on hepatitis C in Pakistan. Nancy has worked in civilian protection, such as assessing conditions of detection in Myanmar. She's back to pursue a PhD because she could see a huge promise of the cure for hepatitis C. She thinks that hepatitis C, like HIV, can be a silent infection for many years, but it can be cured in a matter of weeks if it is detected, and her goal is to look at how this detection and prevention can be increased among stigmatized populations. Along the way, Nancy also fell in love with a Burmese artist, writer, and poet, and they opened an art gallery in Yangon together, and I think that makes her interesting as well. So, hello, Nancy, and um, can you tell us a little bit about her project? Um, yeah, thanks for that great introduction, Sarah. Um, I have done a lot of different things in my life, but um, each one of them has somehow been con- connected with trying to improve the lives of people. And uh, and I hope that the one that I'm working on now for my PhD project will be this will have the same effect. So right now, what I'm doing is I am looking at how who has access to hepatitis C care here in British Columbia. Now, technically, everybody who tests hepatitis C positive has access to hepatitis C treatment. And it's Mm. mostly, it's a curative treatment. It's a really good treatment. doesn't take that long. It's one of these dream medicines that just works really well without very many side effects. And there was a big struggle to make sure that this was accessible to everybody because when the direct acting antivirals first were approved in 2013, they were only available to people who had comorbidities or other indications. They weren't available to every single person who tested hepatitis C positive in this in this province. But then there was a, a movement, like really a lot of advocacy to make these treatments available to everybody. And But once they were, it turned out that people didn't like flock to take them, that in fact, there were other barriers beyond this administrative barrier that were preventing people from getting the hepatitis C treatment. Now, I think a lot of people realize that hepatitis C is a very serious disease. And in fact, in a substantial proportion of people who get hepatitis C, it can cause serious liver damage and even eventually cause liver cancer. And in fact, hepatitis C is the number one reason for liver transplants in Mm -hmm. Canada. 
So it's a really serious disease. And since the medicines are so good and not very toxic, it's, there's no objective reason why more people wouldn't take up the treatment. But the fact is only about half the people who test positive take up the treatment. It, I was really surprised that it was that mm -hmm. low. We're humans. So obviously, if there's some issue that's not just availability, but people would still risk death for, it might be pride or it might be some other emotional thing, right? Yes, it could be. And, you know, I'm still in the midst of my research about why this is, but I have interviewed dozens of people about their experiences relating to hepatitis C. And it does turn out that there are other reasons why the people who I've talked to have chosen not to get tested for hepatitis C or not to get treated for hepatitis C. And even those who I've talked to who have been treated for hepatitis C, many of them waited many years before they actually took up the treatment. Yeah. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about uh, the availability generally for this treatment, the cost for it when it became available in Canada as a public thing? Right. So that is that is like a really, uh, that's an interesting process that it went through. So the direct acting antivirals, and there are a number of them now that have been approved in Canada, they were first approved for, uh, for general public use in late 2013. And they are very expensive medicines. But on the other hand, they are because hepatitis C has so many health consequences if it's untreated, even when they are, even when these direct acting, acting antivirals, I'm just going to call them DAAs. So even when these DAAs were being paid for at full price, because they're, you know, there's a lot of them are still mm. under, uh, they're not patented. generic. Yes, yes. They're, they're patented. Thank you. So they, uh, even though many of these medicines are still patented, even when they're very expensive, it still saves money to treat people for hepatitis C early because either treating people later or waiting until people have liver damage and then dealing with all the consequences of that is more expensive than treating people earlier, even if people have acute hepatitis C. So in acute hepatitis C, that is when people have first gotten the infection and it's considered to last for maybe six months that people have an acute infection. Very often they don't have any symptoms, so they don't know they have an acute infection, but you can tell because of regular testing, right? Nice. Okay. And about 70% of those people with acute infection will go on to have a chronic infection, but you know, 25 or 30% are going to clear it. And so early on, because these, these medicines are so expensive, there was a tendency to wait to find out whether people are going to clear it on their own and only then treatment, treat them. But the problem with that is that some people are not going to come back for testing later. Right. And also some people are going to pass that infection on during the time that they have their acute infection. Right. So later there was a policy de decision that despite the expense of the DAAs, right. everybody should be treated immediately. I mean, you never force anyone to have treatment, obviously, but everybody yeah. should be offered treatment. So everybody is eligible for treatment as soon as they test positive, at okay. least here in British Columbia. That's really interesting. And I think that we've jumped ahead, but what Nancy, what Nancy was talking about in her project is that she generally seems to be interested in the people themselves that aren't able to 
get the availability of this hepatitis C antiviral. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what type of people might feel they can't go to the healthcare system. It is free and accessible, allegedly, to many of us, right? Right. Well, I'm actually interested in a constellation of three things. Mm-hmm. First of all, as you say, the people who who would benefit from the treatment, right? But I'm also interested in the people who are involved in giving that treatment. They are also very important. And then I'm also interested in the policy or the policy makers, right? Which influence who is able to prescribe the treatment and who is able to receive the treatment. So Before I even got here, there was also a lot, there was already a lot of advocacy done, like I said, to make sure that these DAAs were available to everybody who tests positive, which is fantastic. But then there is the the aspect of who is able to prescribe it. So here in British Columbia, early on in the earlier kinds of treatments, especially only specialists could treat hepatitis Mm. C. But then some time ago, because the DAAs are not nearly as complicated as the earlier treatments with interferon that required a lot of measurement and calibration, and they were quite toxic. So there were a lot of dangers associated with them. At that time, only specialists could give the treatments. But because the DAAs are much more straightforward, if people don't have a complicated case, so if they don't already have cirrhosis or if they don't have other comorbidities that make the treatment more complex, then primary care providers can can prescribe this treatment. But you know, in other provinces, like in Alberta, and in other places, like in Scotland, for example, even pharmacists can prescribe these medicines. And that's really fantastic, because in many cases, pharmacists are the people who people who need this treatment contact most often, it's easier to get an appointment with a pharmacist than with a doctor, right? And plus, people are very familiar often with their pharmacists. So there is also that like policy element about who gets to give the treatment and who not. Yeah, that's that's really incredible. I didn't realize that at all. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about a little bit more about your plan, like who you're going to be, how your research works, who you're going to be talking to, what that might look like in the future for your research? Yeah, so my research really consists of three parts. So Mm. as I mentioned, I've already talked to quite a lot of people who are in what we call priority populations for hepatitis C. So when I say priority population, I mean people who would benefit from getting priority in attention for their possible hepatitis C. So that means they should get priority for testing, they should have priority for outreach, because they're the people who are likely to be most affected by hepatitis C. So this includes people who have possibly had hepatitis C longer, people who are at higher risk for getting hepatitis C, and people who, because of certain comorbidities, are likely to be more affected by hepatitis C. So we summarize all of these conditions as as priority populations. So I've already interviewed a lot of people about their experiences and what they think about hep C, what they think about the health system. And the next phase of my research is about is about the healthcare providers. And I'm really excited about that part because I've heard from a lot of people about how different healthcare providers have treated them and the good experiences that they've had, the bad experiences they've had, 
And now I really am eager to talk to the healthcare providers and get their perspective yeah. about why they why they treat hep C, if they are comfortable treating hep C, um, what they would need to be more confident in treating hep C if that's necessary and what their experiences have been. So that's the next phase of my research that I'm really excited about. Yeah, I am curious about how you built rapport with these people that um, you were interviewing. Like, how did you reach out? How were you able to get them to trust you? And like, how did you learn those storytelling skills that made them want to share their story? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it's uh, really it's really important, as you say, to have rapport so that people feel comfortable and want to tell you their stories. Mm -hmm. And I guess that there are a couple of ways that I do that. So first of all, I'm not doing this on my own. I have a team. And key in this team are community researchers. So when I was involved in an outreach program for hepatitis C testing, I met some, I met a lot of people, but like one of them really stood out as being somebody who was very strong speaker, a very passionate person. And she had lived experience of having hepatitis C. And so when I decided to do this project, she was the first person who I contacted. And I asked her about what she thought about doing some kind of a project like this. We discussed it, the format, what we wanted to do. And, uh, and we came up with both a um, both a plan about what to do, about how we would work together, and also with a title for the project, which is Untold Stories of True Strength. Because what we felt was that the people who in these priority populations are frequently underrated about the actual strength that they have, right? Like for a lot of people, daily life is really hard and they are getting through that and yet remain underrated, undervalued. And you just have to, I think, speak, listen openly, you know, listen, listen carefully to what people say, listen respectfully, let people tell their whole story, show them that you're interested in what they have to say, show you that you value what they have to say. And people can feel that even though I haven't been able to interview people in person because I started this project mm. during the pandemic. And so I've only been able to interview people over Zoom or over the phone. But if you are, you know, if you really listen, if you're patient, if you give people time to tell your story, they'll tell their story. So my, um, I've done some of the interviews with my community partners. So there are two of us interviewing. So we take turns asking questions and asking for more details. And I think that people really appreciate having somebody from their own community, probably somebody who actually recruited them on the call because they know that person, right, where I'm the stranger. But I've done a number of interviews on my own as well. And I just... I don't know. I just listen to what people have to say. And I find that then most people actually really want to talk. I find it interesting. One thing that you said was when we're talking about these stories and when people are having a conversation, there's specific things that they want to be extraordinarily heard about. And they aren't necessarily the things that you ask, but it's the things in the periphery that they feel like are really important. And that really caught my attention because 
I only have two other friends that um, do qualitative research. One's Katrina and she works with veterans. And then one's Maya and she works with like Northern indigenous populations. And they've both uh, adjacently said the same thing as you, which is just like, it's the things that they say on the side that they, these people feel like they haven't been heard that they so desperately want out there. One of the things I'm really impressed by is that it seems like most of your work was quantitative before, but to learn that ability to catch that stuff, the qualitative components of the story that are really important and really like um, pull out what is what they're trying to say, I think is is an incredible skill. You know, that's true. Like I have a number of questions that I ask. I have set questions that I ask, but I always make it really clear at the beginning of the interview that they don't have to answer these questions that, and that if there are things that I don't ask that they think I should know, then I would like to hear those too. And the last, one of the very last questions I always ask is what else would you like to tell me or what else would you like me to know? And those do bring out often some very interesting additional, very interesting additional stories, very interesting additional information. Yeah. Because I am not going in there with my own agenda. My agenda really is what's most important to you. Mm -hmm. And so if people wander off track on one of my questions, I just keep listening. And, you know, sometimes people apologize for having gone off on a tangent. But, you know, I always tell them that the tangents are very often the most interesting thing because that tells me what their priorities are, which is what I want to know. Could you tell us a little bit about some of your previous experience well, the way that I got into this thesis was um, a, a little bit of a, really a little bit result of a kind of a failure, really. So I was originally planning to do a thesis that was going to combine quantitative data from Pakistan and British Columbia, um, because Pakistan just did a fantastic national survey for viral hepatitis um, and. I was working out who my contacts in Pakistan were going to be, what that relationship, you know, was how we were going to get our get our cooperation going and the timing and, and everything. And this was in late 2019 because I started my degree in September 2019. Um, and, you know, already in January, um, I already gave up that idea because... <laughs> I could already tell by late January that I was not going to be able to, and it wouldn't be right, you know, to try to get the attention of people for something that's a much longer term problem than COVID-19, right? Like hepatitis C, as big of a problem as it is, it's not going to kill you in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I basically just gave up that idea. I figured, you know, no one knew at that point how long the pandemic was going to last, People were optimistic that it might not last that long, but, you know, I could even, I, I figured even if I was going to be able to travel internationally again within, say, a year, within the period of my PhD, that it, that the, there would be so many repercussions that like for a ministry of health, it was not, hepatitis C was not going to rise to the top of their priorities. And so I had to completely give up that idea. And I really appreciate my supervisor, Viviani, because 
she is totally quantitative. And yet, because I had had this contact with the hep C community here in British Columbia already, when I was trying to find out what the situation is here and get a feel for the community here, I realized that the priority for the community was not anything quantitative. It was really this question of why it was a question of why people did not feel welcome in primary care in so that they didn't feel that hepatitis C treatment was accessible to them, even though technically it was accessible. The providers are there. The medicines are there. The policies are in place. And yet people were just not willing to go and actually get the treatment. And that was, that seemed to be really clearly, you know, among the dozens of people who I talked to, this was something that just came up again and again and again, like how they didn't feel welcome, how they didn't feel they could actually go get the treatment. Yeah, I, I have a couple of thoughts about that. I, I know that, as you say, the institutions that kind of land the people in these spaces aren't going to change in any time soon. There's a lot of reasons why people might be in a situation where they might be uh, more susceptible to getting these these diseases, right? And so you're just trying to tackle that and give your part to how can we help these physicians empathize with these people and give better treatment, and then how can how can these people maybe accept it as well? Yeah, so that's that's absolutely true. And you know, it's not exactly that I think that the healthcare providers, so here it's like the primary care doctors and the nurse practitioners who are mm -hmm. the people who are who I'm really concentrating on in my research now. It's not that I think that they're not empathetic. I think they are empathetic. They've seen a lot of people. They've, they have, you know, already showed a lot of empathy. In fact, there's a lot of talk about like compassion fatigue. <laughs> But there is, there's like, I think that there's another issue. And this is what I'm hoping to find out in the next phase of my research. I think that there is another issue of, uh, of communication, that the ways that people have been taught to communicate in their medical education, or possibly the ways that they have evolved personally in their own practice to talk to their patients, is not always heard by their patients in the way that it's intended by the physicians. That is what I think I'm, I'm going to find out. And so that's why in my research, you know, a lot of research is first, you know, you, you investigate a certain thing. So in my case, I'm, in, I'm first investigating what the barriers for patients are to go get the treatment. Then I am investigating what the barriers are for the healthcare providers to give this treatment. Also, in both cases, what the facility, what we call the facilitators are, right? Like what makes it easy for, for easier for people to give and get the treatment. But then my research actually, and very often research would stop at that phase. So you see, you can find other papers about the barriers and facilitators for both of these populations. But I wanted my research in my PhD to go one step further and to actually take that knowledge and to make it into something practical that I could then try out. And as part of my PhD, to actually do a 
practical activity to try to really make a difference. And then finally, of course, I also, because it's a PhD, uh, will write a paper about that, Mm -hmm. how I made it and what the effect was, whether or not it was effective. But it was really important for me that that actually be part of my PhD. So I'm actually creating an educational module accredited. So it means that nurse practitioners and primary care physicians can get continuing professional development credit for taking this module. Um, And I'm going to use this research to including the stories of people who have or have not gotten hepatitis C treatment to show the show the healthcare professionals how the patients want their these uh, how how the patients want these encounters to go right like how they want how they want to be spoken to how they want to be listened to right i'm essentially trying to take the wisdom of the people who have or have been avoiding treatment for hepatitis c and turn that that like public wisdom into educational materials, learning materials for the healthcare professionals. So I need to translate the sort of raw experience and words of the patient population into a module that is that the healthcare professionals can hear, you know, turn it into their terms, their words, to understand their needs, to Mm -hmm. understand why they say and do the things they do, to understand what their constraints are. And, and so, and then to like craft these materials that will bridge this communication gap that looks like it's happening between the people who are giving the care and the people who are getting the care. So a little bit about hepatitis C, just for our listeners. It's a, it's a virus that affects the liver, and the World Health Organization has deemed that it likely is feasible to be eradicated in the near future, with the original goal being 2030. And I, uh, I think that's really interesting that that's possible at all, like smallpox. The World Health Organization has deemed hepatitis C as a priority to eradicate. It's something that's globally affecting and killing a lot of people. Hepatitis C you know, it's one of the five hepatitis viruses. Tell us a little bit about what you think the methods are and why it's important to to stop infection as early as possible for, for that greater goal of eradicating the virus entirely. Right. Yeah. So eradication is really the um, you know, it's the gold medal of public health interventions. And there are only a few diseases that have been entirely eradicated, including like smallpox. Also, some animal diseases have been eradicated, like rinderpest. There's a guinea worm, which is on track. There's been a huge effort to try to eradicate polio, but mm-hmm. it keeps running into problems. So for um, the ultimate goal for hepatitis C is also eradication. And the reason that that's possible is that there isn't a significant animal reservoir. So if you have very serious diseases like malaria, for example, well, birds also get malaria. So it's going to be almost impossible to actually get rid of malaria entirely from the world, even if you can get rid of it from certain areas of the world. But hepatitis C isn't like that. There are a couple of animals that can get hepatitis C, but a person is extremely unlikely to get hep C from any of those animals. So basically, once every last person has been cured of hepatitis C, 
And once the few animals that have it have then died out without giving it on, hepsi is gone. We never need to worry about it again, you know, which is amazing. So I'm really excited about that prospect. So there are stages on the way to eradication and before eradication comes elimination. So elimination means getting rid of the disease from an entire area of the world or else sometimes it's used and in the case of hepatitis this is the case it's it's used to me getting it below a level where it's commonly passed on so we talk about eliminating hepatitis c as a public health issue which means it's not that it's not an issue anymore it's not that nobody has mm -hmm. it anymore but it becomes more of an individual health issue that can be dealt with on a different scale and causes a lot less human suffering than when it's and when it's endemic in an area. So it means once it's at that scale, then it's very unlikely that it's going to be passed on to other people and you can devote a lot fewer resources to it and go on to other problems. So yeah, the idea for a hep C is that uh, Canada, along with pretty much the entire rest of the world, has committed to trying to eliminate hep C by 2030, which is looking closer and closer, especially because a lot of the programs have had big setbacks during the COVID-19 pandemic. But I really think that, you know, it's, it's a really useful, even though we probably won't make it by 2030 anymore, BC just might squeak by and make it because we're really kind of out ahead here with treatment as prevention, as a right. concept. It's already in use for um, HIV, for example. Mm -hmm. So we're really kind of out there in the forefront here in British Columbia. And so that's one reason why it's exciting to be working right here. But, you know, Canada as a whole and the world as a whole have really, it's probably going to take a few more years. But still, it's like it's important to have a way to focus the effort in that way because there are a lot of diseases in the world and they all need to be treated, but not all of them can be eliminated. If you want to eliminate and get yeah. all the benefits that come with elimination, you have to have, you have to like decide, okay, now it is this disease in these years. It's going to get the extra effort that's going to then have a big payoff for everybody. I do remember reading about the downtown East Side and how there was not a controversy because it shouldn't be a controversy. But with the cost of the hepatitis C um, antiviral and like how people felt about delivering this to people that are, for anyone listening that's not from Vancouver, downtown east side has um, people that are oftentimes in poverty or difficult situations. And um, I was wondering if you had any comments on that. Um, yeah, I do. So I have worked my entire, even though... Even though in my professional life, a lot of what I've done is full on public health, health promotion. The values that underlie that are health equity, human rights, human dignity. So I don't care how poor somebody is. I value everybody's life the same. And I don't think that some people should get expensive drugs and other people because they're in poverty should not get expensive drugs. So, and in fact, in the area where I work, which is mostly Asia, the people 
who, if, if anybody, if you were going to have to ration drugs for some reason, personally, I would give the drugs to the poorer people. Because in many situations, if somebody in a poor household dies, they cannot keep their children in school. They cannot keep their business open. They are set back an entire generation. Where somebody who's wealthier, for example, is going to be able, if they lose one member of their household, there's the rest of the household is still going to be able to overcome that, of course, is tragic. But I think that trying to divide uh, who gets treatment based on who is, you know, whose life is more or less chaotic, whose, whose finances are more or less, you know, robust is just not the right way to look at it. And in fact, um, what you say is something, you know, what, what you bring up is an issue that people uh, who I've talked to bring up a lot. So, for example, when I have got medical care, um, nobody has ever told me how much the treatment that I was getting was going to cost. If I need a treatment, I just get the prescription and I go get it. But I've heard from a lot of people that when they are prescribed hepatitis C treatment, they're told this treatment costs $60,000. Yeah. And the way that they hear that. It's inappropriate. The, well, you yeah. know, what I think is, I think that the person who says that is wants to be sure that the patient values this treatment, mm. that they realize, even though they're not paying for it, this treatment is not free yeah. in any sense, right? This treatment is expensive and it's being paid for and it's valuable. It's valuable because it cures them, but it's valuable because it's also an expense for the healthcare system that does not have an infinite amount of money. So that's, I imagine that that is what the doctor is thinking. But what the patient is hearing is, my doctor is questioning whether my life is worth $60,000. And I don't think that the person who says that is thinking that way. But that is, that's still what's heard. So when I talk about there being a communication issue here, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I absolutely agree. And one of the things I'm trying to bang home here is that this is actually one of the first projects that we've interviewed that is rooted deeply in inequity. And, and that's what I'm uh, like, I have actually, you know, who is at risk for hepatitis C infection by the World Health Organization, or I believe I got it from there. People with HIV infection current or former people who use injection drugs, including those injected only once many years ago, and people with medical conditions. It also includes people that needed transfusions or organ transplants. So hepatitis C fundamentally is a disease for people that need help. It's not, it's not, and I, I mean, it is for everyone, of course, but we all know that there are things that lead people to be in situations like that. And I, I just want to say, I really appreciate your work. I think it's really, really valuable. Yeah. Thank you. And actually I would like to say one 
One group of people who are not often considered at high risk for hepatitis C, so you mentioned these populations, these are what I was calling the priority populations. Mm -hmm. Um, There are even more of them than that. For example, people who have been in any kind of a detention facility are also at higher risk not because of being in the detention facility, but because of the exposures that they have while they are there. In in addition, um, I think that one group that's often overlooked here or considered to just be part of other groups, which is not really fair, is sex workers. People who have sold sexual services are actually exposed to pretty much the same kind of exposure as men who have sex with men. Mm -hmm. Men who have sex with men are considered one of the priority populations. Um, Sex workers never come up, even though really the exposures are extremely similar. And so that for the two populations that I've been working with are people with any history of selling sexual services and people with any history of taking any kind of a drug. Yeah, yeah. I uh, just want to touch on that. Actually, there's a paper here um, by Shafran Al, And I, I think at this point, they're saying, you know, these individuals are not perceived to be at high risk for ACV. They're proven to be at high risk. And this is talking about sex workers. And it, hepatitis C isn't necessarily passed on very frequently through the sex. It just seems that oftentimes, um, these individuals, because of the circumstances they're in, uh, have a history of illicit drug use, which makes them more susceptible. So I don't know if you have a comment. Maybe I, I'm a little bit backlogged, but it, it is through the blood oftentimes. So you're right. The sex, if you have anal sex or anything like that, the breaking of the membrane could, could allow that. And that's perhaps where men having sex with men, it's more frequently having hepatitis C. But yeah, it, it's really interesting. All of this is is huge huge public health stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And um, you're right. It's the, it's the trauma to the membranes, which then Mm. creates the blood to blood potential exposure that creates the risk here. Um, What you say about a lot of sex workers also using drugs, that's true. But if, but it's not true of all sex workers. Yeah. Also not all sex workers, even the ones who do use drugs, they don't all use, they don't all inject. And but it's true that with Hep C you can get it also without injecting. Any kind of sharing of drug use equip, equipment is dangerous. But you also see in people there there is research that shows that for people who both sell sex and inject drugs, mm-hmm. if you compare the ones who sell sex and inject drugs to the ones who only inject drugs, the ones who in addition sell sexual services are more likely to have. Hepatitis C. So it's, it's clear to me that that it is being passed on through sex as well. But because um, because the it's it's hard to to tease that out and to catch people early enough that you can like I mean if you imagine the the testing and the the project that you would have to do in order to prove that people were getting it through sex and not some other way I mean that's a a very large yeah. research project with a lot of resources that I think is not really necessary because you can just conceptually, we know that men who have sex with men who don't do any kind of drug 
And so if sex workers have the same exposures, I don't think that we need to do that research specifically with sex workers to understand that sex workers also have the same risk. And not only that, but I think that people also underestimate the size of the population because a lot of men who have sex with men are visible. They're active. They're out there being activists. They're out there in our lives. They're our friends. They're our family where I think probably a lot fewer people, especially maybe in academia and policymakers, are going to know that someone is a sex worker, know that they know a sex worker or even know a sex worker at all. And so maybe they think that this population is very small. And of course, the sex work population, sex worker population is very difficult to measure because of the just the underground and nature of it in our society. But like the estimates that I've been able to find by experts are that there are probably around 2000 sex workers in Vancouver at any one time. Yeah. And okay, so you consider, okay, so Vancouver is, you know, the the lower mainland is roughly half of the population of British Columbia. So maybe we can double that or even just increase it by another thousand, maybe. But then you also consider that when somebody is a man who has sex with men, they're that for their whole lives. Where the sex worker population is 2000 now. How long do people do sex work? Usually not for their whole lives, right? So people are going to be a sex worker for like a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. So if it's 2000 at any one time, and you then consider that this is a rolling population, Mm -hmm. and the people who have undergone the risk for acquiring hepatitis C now, they might not know it until later. Well, you have to consider that, you know, this population is a lot bigger than the two or 3,000 that are currently selling sex at any one time. I think that also causes people to underestimate the size of this issue. Totally. And uh, just, I should have asked that as more of a question on your opinion, because, uh, yeah, I don't mean to equate that people that do sex work do drugs. And I think that that is respectable work and do what you need to do. So just, I don't know, the air is clear. I really believe that people should be able to do that work if they need to um, or want to. Quick wrap up. What's your biggest success so far? Uh, For me, my biggest success is just honestly... I've done a lot of things that I'm really proud of, including a a really great occupational program for uh, testing for outreach program for testing for and curing hepatitis C in Karachi that I'm really proud of. We had an excellent team. We did really great work there. But for me, I just like conceiving and being able to carry out this PhD project that not only does the research, but also puts that research into action and, you know, gets to wrap it all up with giving back to the community instead of just doing the research and publishing it for other academics. For me, that's probably what I consider my biggest success, even though I haven't finished it yet. So yeah, just at the conception level, but I'm really excited about it. Um, What is your biggest failure? You know, that's a difficult question because mostly we work in teams. So, you know, you can say, well, the biggest, you know, if if I propose something and it's rejected, 
okay, I wrote the proposal, but you know, it might've been rejected for very good reasons because the organization has other priorities. So, um, it's hard to say what my biggest failure would be. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I, I I find that I find that really hard to answer. Yeah, there's no failure if it rolls into something good, eh? Right, right. I like, think so. I guess in a way it was because I didn't have like, you know, I wasn't getting all of the professional success that I thought that I could get. So in a way I like failed. I wasn't, wasn't, I felt like I could do more professionally and that's what then spurred me to do this PhD. So I guess that's a like professional failure of ro rolling into a PhD success. Yeah, I, I'm here for that. And finally, do you have a takeaway for our listeners? Ah, uh, takeaway for listeners. Well, it depends on who they are. If these, if the listeners are primary care people in BC, my takeaway is contact me and tell me about your experience treating hepatitis C or treating people from the hep C priority populations. If my if it's to the general public, I want to say if you've never been tested for hep C, test for it even just once. It's easy. It's uh, and and then like you'll know and like that's doing your bit to to for elimination because about one point five percent of people in British Columbia have had hepatitis C and that's a lot of people. Thank you to Nancy Cunningham for coming in, and I mean it's been incredible. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much. It's been like really fun to do this interview with you. This podcast was created with the help of our incredible team at The Unscientific Method. We're your hosts, Beth Castle and Sarah Data. Our storytellers are Sophia Ramirez, Tian Doe, and Cheda Swan. Audio editing is done by Candace Sip, Kelly Liu, and Richard Chiang. Marketing and promotions are done by Conan Lee, Eugene Jang, Emily Dart, and Helen Amp. We also have the pleasure of working with Advice to a Scientist and SciCats to create science communication workshops for the young scientists that we have on the show. Thank you to Laura Stankowitz, Candace Ip, and Jen Ma for making these happen. And if you want to let us know how we're doing, request something that you want to hear about, or learn more about the workshops, hit us up on social media. Follow us at the.unscientific.method on Instagram or on Twitter at unscientificubc. Send us a message on Instagram, Twitter, or at theunscientificmethod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Bye for now.